0: The reading this morning is taken from Acts 17 and may be found on page 1113 in the church Bibles. Acts 17, starting at verse 16 and continuing to verse 34. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Greeks as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to dispute with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus, where they said to him, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears and we want to know what they mean. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, men of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious, for as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. Now what you worship as something unknown, I'm going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. From one man he made every nation of men, that they should inhabit the whole earth, and he determined the time set for them and the exact places where they should live. God did this so that men would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us for in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by man's design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent for he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to all men by raising him from the dead. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, but others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council. A few men became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysius, a member of the Areopagus also a woman named Damaris and another of other, and a number of others this is the word of the lord
1: let me pray as we begin heavenly father we bow in your presence may your word be our rule your holy spirit our teacher and your greater glory our supreme concern through jesus christ our lord amen well, we've identified a number of uh, issues which uh, can often restrain us in sharing our faith with other people. And the one that we're looking at today is the message, what to say. Now, I think uh, all of us um, would benefit from having a little outline of the Christian faith in our mind so that uh, you know, we know where it begins, ends, what the principal points in the middle are, And that um, if we're asked, we can say that in two minutes. Um, For example, two ways to live. If you use your search engine and type in two ways to live and you find um, YouTube, you'll find it presented in two minutes. It's a diagrammatic form and it's very helpful indeed because it gives you a a framework. You know what you're about. Over life, you can... uh, if you like, amplify the principal kind of points of the outline, and the more you kind of interact with people and they ask questions, the easier it is for you to uh, go in at the point, which may not be the beginning or the end, of where their question is, so that you don't have to be like some of those people who come knocking on our doors um, um, with the watchtower, who if you ask them a question, if you, if you target the one that looks the kind of newest, they'll rewind the tape to the beginning and then just start all over again. They won't interact with you because they're not experienced enough, really. So we, uh, the more we uh, engage with people, the more they ask questions, then the more we are able to uh, enable that outline to become part of our just natural and normal way of thinking. Now, Paul was exceptionally talented. We don't have to be as good as him, but we should try to be as good as our God-given ability allows. Now, some of you will be able to uh, explain to people the answer to their questions of life. Um, But some questions might stump you. But that's a learning opportunity. And this is what you do. You simply admit you don't know the answer to that. But you say, "Um, I'll go away and I'll find out. And you go away and you do some research. You maybe phone a friend and you get the answer and you go back to the questioner as promised and you carry on the conversation. If another question stumps you, you just repeat the procedure. And that's how you learn as well as your friend learns. It's important to be flexible, um, not in the content, but in the way in which we deliver it and share it. And the Apostle Paul was very uh, set on content, but he was very flexible on delivery. And in these chapters 17 and 18 in the Acts of the Apostles, we see how Paul presents the gospel. We get a little insight. In according to who his audience were and what kind of reception he was receiving, so in seventeen ten to fifteen, we have an example of how he presented the gospel to the Bereans, who were uh, Bible believers. We're told, in other words, they were Jews who did recognise and knew the Old Testament. And then in uh, uh, eighteen one to seventeen, we get um, an example of how. Paul addresses those who are in authority we saw last week how he spoke to people like Felix and Festus and Agrippa but today we're looking at 17 16 to 34 where we have an example of how Paul addressed the gospel to what we might call a pagan audience they did not have any jewish background at all they had no knowledge of the scriptures which is probably the situation we find us in most commonly today. Well, Paul had to leave Berea in a hurry. The Bereans had, we read 1711, received the message with great eagerness and examined the scriptures every day to see what Paul said was true. That's what we should do to everything we hear, whether it's informally in a house group, whether it's kind of said on some kind of debate on TV, whether it's in church, examine the scriptures to see if it is true. And the result, 1712, many Jews believed, as did a number of prominent Greek women and many Greek men. Well, That's great. But, Thessalonica, 50 miles up the road, they turfed him out after two weeks, and they hear that he's kind of uh, getting this kind of response in Berea, so some of them leg it down to stir things up against him, and so it's time for him to move on. And he's rushed from Berea to Athens, but uh, his companions who weren't with him at the, at the time, although they were in Berea, uh, T- Timothy and Silas, they received message that they were to join him as soon as possible. So at Athens, Paul one, might, Paul, one might say if one was an Australian, that he went walkabout. He did a bit of kind of tourism. He did what you do if you went to um, Athens and the Acropolis today. You go walkabout. You go up on the Parthenon and you would have a look around and you think, oh yeah, the missing bits are in the British Museum, that's right. And. Um, <laughs> And then you'd look down from the top of the hill and you'd see this lump of rock, um, which is called Mars Hill, although it's much, much lower than the Acropolis. And uh, in his day, it was called the Areopagus. It's where they had their council meetings. And we find that as Paul wanders around their city, um, he, uh, he sees things, he felt things, he did things, he said things. That's what we're mostly looking at this morning and then we see what finally happened. So he saw verse 16, he felt verse 16, what he did verse 17 and what from 17 onwards he then said, and in verse 32 we discover what happened. So what did he see? He saw the city was full of idols, innumerable temples, shrines, statues, altars, the Pantheon, which is still there today as I said, and it said that you could see the uh, silver spear of the statue of Venus on the Pantheon When the sun shone, you could see that 40 miles away. That's the distance from here to Salisbury. The Roman satirist said that it was easier to find a god in Athens than a man. There were various statues to different supposed deities, Apollo, Jupiter, Venus, Mercury, Bacchus, Neptune, Diana. These were made of stone, of bronze, of gold, ivory, marble, silver, beautiful creations, and yet tragic ones, because their God-given talent of creativity, artistic creativity, had been prostituted. Their talent was not used for the glory of the true God, but for phony ones. Now, it's impossible to uh, understand our hearts or our culture if we don't discern the counterfeit gods that influence us. The Apostle Paul, writing to the Christian church in Rome in chapter 1, says that... uh, Idolatry is not only one sin among many, but it's what is fundamentally wrong with the human heart. Paul says, for although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the creator. Idolatry, then, is the reason we ever do anything wrong. Because idolatry is anything that we think is more important than God himself. We wouldn't lie, for example, unless we first had made something, whether that be human approval, personal reputation, uh, power over others, financial advantage, if we'd never made one of those things or many others more important to our hearts than the grace and favor of God. And the secret of changing is to identify and then dismantle the counterfeit idols which we have created in our hearts. Tim Keller in his book Counterfeit Gods, which is subtitled When the Empty Promises of Love, Money and Power Let You Down, lists some of these counterfeit idols. Theological idols, that's doctrinal errors that produce such a distorted view of God that we end up worshiping a false god. And it works like this, that we read the Bible and we don't like certain bits. We might be really quite cavalier and dismiss them, say there's some later interpolation or something or other, just added in. Or we might just kind of downplay them and forget them. And then, you see, we've created ourselves a distortion of what the Bible reveals. And since the Bible ultimately reveals the character of God, we end up with a different God. Sexual idols, addictions that promise but don't deliver a sense of intimacy and acceptance, ideals of physical beauty, romantic idealism, political or economic idols, where ideologies of the left or the right or libertarianism that kind of absolutize some aspect of political order and then make it the solution. Relational idols, dysfunctional family systems of codependency, fatal attractions, living your life through your children. Racial or national idols, racism, militarism, nationalism, or ethnic pride that turns bitter and oppressive. Or cultural idols. Radical individualism that we have in the West that makes an idol out of individual happiness at the expense of the community. Or in the East, the shame cultures that make an idol out of the family or the clan at the expense of individual rights. And there are many more that he lists. It's called Counterfeit Gods, Tim Keller. But back to Paul. We've seen what he saw. We now look at at what he felt. He was greatly distressed, he says in verse 16 again. He is jealous because God, the true God, is not being honoured as he should be. He's not getting the recognition or the glory or the credit that he deserves. Instead, all these phonies are. Now, what gets you going? What really stirs you up? What moves you? And is it, for example, the poverty and starvation yet again in Ethiopia? Is it the wickedness of genocide, where people are just murdered because of their ethnicity, as we've seen in the Middle East more recently, or 20 years ago in Rwanda or Bosnia? Is it the environment? That's what gets you going, you're concerned about pollution, you're concerned about the future for your great-grandchildren? Is it something like abortion, which in our country has sadly killed over more than six million children since 1967? Is it the damage done to children once they are born, both recognized, but also what is accepted parental behavior? All those issues should stir us. All too often we feel anaesthetised. We feel that we're powerless to do anything about them, but we're not. But Paul was stirred by something even greater, the thought that the people were perishing, that they were on their way from exclusion from God forever. Eternity without God. Hell. What a waste. Here we have in Athens what at that time was the most educated, affluent, healthiest bunch of people in the ancient world. And they'd missed the whole point of existence. He's been there. He knows what it's like. He knows how he once lived, where he lived in denial of the real God, and in fact fought very violently against the real God and against his people. And he's able to look back and regard that as something of a waste. So he can identify with them very easily. And he wants them to discover what he's discovered, And he's jealous for the true God of the universe, that he should get the credit he deserves. That's what moves him. So what did he do? Verse 17, he reasoned with them, which means he discussed, he debated, he argued, he persuaded. He didn't actually wait to be asked. For him, the situation was too desperate for that. So he takes the initiative. He had the confidence. He believed in the truth. And like Solzhenitsyn, he believes that one word of truth outweighs the whole world. He'd experienced God in his own life. He'd seen him at work in the lives of others. He knows he's on the right track. And he is, with his emotional intelligence, bold. Bold. So he didn't confine himself to the Jews. He went, of course, first of all to the synagogue, which was his kind of normal practice. He then goes off to the agora, which is the marketplace, the center of all public life. Now, we don't have the equivalent of that in the UK. I guess maybe in medieval times when there may have been market day and everybody gathered together in the village market and exchange uh, goods and services, but also exchange gossip and talked about the world and whatever else. But of course, in the Mediterranean culture, they do. They're able to have their market stalls and then around them, as if you go there today, there are bars and cafes and other shops and what have you. And people mill around and talk and they're able to put the world to rights. So they have that setting, and uh, Paul obviously causes quite a stir because a group of Epicureans and Stoic philosophers began to dispute with him. Now these people are the chattering classes. Now this is a very, very rich place, Athens. These people have somehow got a nice income stream that they can afford to sit around and talk and pontificate and waffle, as Paul thinks they do. and. Like many of their 21st century counterparts, they begin to feel threatened by the Christian God because he demands the surrender of their autonomy. He demands that they conform to his way of thinking and believing. And they resist. They do not want to go there. And that's because the Christian faith does have uh, absolute demands in how we think and in our morality. And that's the last thing they want. The Stoics, they were the pantheists. They thought that God is some kind of spirit and that he's everywhere. He's the soul of the world. And they were incredibly fatalistic. What will be, will be. They believed in doing their duty, be tough, you know, stiff upper lip, self-sufficient. So For them, you live by just submitting to your fate. You just grin and bear it. Whatever life throws at you. There's a certain kind of similarity to Islam in that. Then there are the Epicureans. For them, the gods are remote. Far, far away. And they're uninterested in this world. They, in a sense, a functional atheist. Everything is down to chance, and when death comes, that's it, there's no judgement or anything. So eat, drink and be merry, for tomorrow we die, was one of their slogans. That's the kind of hedonism that we have today. So the chattering classes can sometimes make the simple Christian feel inadequate and so clam up, but don't, because you have to take the whole package. People can be intellectually clever, but not necessarily wise. Teachers, doctors, journalists, academics, broadcasters, arty types, they may possess a certain vocabulary and a certain confidence derived from their particular narrow sphere of knowledge and they have the jargon to kind of exclude your understanding on first hearing till you translate it into ordinary words. But the question you have to ask is, have they really got it together? Are they a whole person? Have they managed with their specialist knowledge to make sense of the whole of life and then live in peace and harmony accordingly? Do they have a coherent, intellectual framework for understanding the world today? Well, from observation, from what one reads or sees, or people that one has met, manifestly they don't. And many secular commentators will admit that. They might be quite good at trying to destroy aspects of the Christian worldview, unsuccessfully, but they don't have anything really coherent to put in its place that really corresponds to the way in which we experience life for ourselves, they have a knowledge advantage, they may well be intellectually cleverer, but so often they have pretty messed up lives. I could spend all morning talking to you about people that I've met like that in my lifetime, but I'll just share one. When I was um, a management trainee, one of the places I was sent to was Bath, and I lived in a house with a bunch of uh, young doctors, one was a registrar in psychiatry. Now you'd have thought that he'd got it all together, wouldn't you? But he'd been told by his consultant when he started, look, you haven't got time to treat the patients. You treat the staff and let the staff treat the patients. Well, it might be um, sad, but it's probably an element of truth to it. But, of course, there was no one to treat him. And many an evening I'd sit down uh, with him, have a drink, and I'd listen to his sorry life. Often he had tears in his eyes, and yet publicly he could appear to be quite intimidating because he was in role. He was in his professional expertise, but out of it, he was a mess. And there are lots of people who are like that. Well, the intelligentsia whisk him off from the marketplace to Mars Hill, to the Areopagus. Now that's the place where the council meets, where the chattering class decide who gets to kind of speak in public in Athens. And they want to hear more because they like doing that kind of thing. And so we've seen three natural venues, the synagogue, where we went first of all, then to the marketplace, and now to the city council. And Paul is able to handle himself in each. He is very talented. There are not many people who are equally able to hold their own with the intelligentsia, with the common man, in the set lecture, or the rough and tumble of pub chat. That is pretty exceptional. So we should just stick at the milieu and the people that we're, if you like, equipped to best serve and engage. But we can take his principles and let's look at what he said. There's a a famous um, story where the young curate asks the bishop, "Um, what should I preach about, bishop? And the bishop says, about God and about 20 minutes. See, all good sermons should seem like 20 minutes. Some might, well, some might stop at five, ought to stop at five minutes. Some could go on for an hour and a half. Now, Paul doesn't start with morality, how to live a happy life by doing X, Y, and Z. He starts with God so that... um, that's where he starts. He starts with their uncurably religious nature, motivated by a desire to see God honored as he should be as their creator, redeemer, and recreator. And he starts to work. And in a polite, reasonable, but nonetheless definite manner, he affirmed the truth. He says, in effect, what you don't know, verse 23. I'm going to tell you because I'm afraid you've got it completely the wrong way round. And he shows them in four clear statements how they have. So the first statement is in verse 24 God has made the world and all that is in it, he does not live in temples built by hands. God is the creator, you are the created. God has made the world as a home for you. You cannot build a home or a temple to contain him. The second, verse 25, thinking of the offering at the temples to the gods, he says, God does not need anything from you to exist. Rather, it is he that gives life to you. Third thing, verse 26, you may think God is away up there in the clouds and uninterested and uninvolved in the affairs of men, that you've created your great Greco-Roman civilization, but not so. God determines the rise and the falls of empires. And fourthly, verse 27, you may think God is remote, but he's not. He is nearer than you think. He's not far from you, but you've caused a great gulf between yourself and him by your sins. So you can see what idolatry does, can't you? It tries to account for the gap that there is between God and man. It tries to cut God down to a size where he is manageable, where he becomes The creation of man, where he is dependent upon man and where man rules his own affairs. Very neat. There they did it with metal and wooden and stone objects. Today we do it by believing in the God of our own creation. But that isn't the Christian God even if we quarry for it out of Christian resources, Christian revelation. But we distort it if we pick and mix. And in response to their idolatry, Paul affirms that God created them, not they him, that God sustains the world, they don't sustain him, and that God rules the world, irrespective of whether they think he does or not. Having stated what the truth is, Paul goes on to apply it to their lives, verse 30. In the past, he says, God overlooked such ignorance. Not because he didn't know it was going on, not because he he condoned it, but simply because he was merciful. Romans 1, 18 to 25 tells how everybody has received a basic revelation from God. It's given to everyone through creation and through conscience. And if they have responded, God would have revealed the next step. But Paul assumed that they didn't and that God would have been quite justified in judging them there and then. But he didn't, he acted mercifully. He gave them time. But Paul is now saying to them, time's up. Because now, Jesus having come, he commands all men everywhere to repent because God has revealed himself clearly and acted decisively in Christ. He therefore demands that all people everywhere repent and recognize his authority. Everybody is morally and spiritually and intellectually, he thinks, in the wrong. And to the Athenians who loved Endless discourses about religion, he says, in effect, cut the religious waffle, face up to reality. Or, as G.K. Chesterton later put it, whatever else is or is not true, this one thing is certain man is not what he was meant to be. Be honest, admit it, repent, Paul says. And then he goes on, in case they need an incentive, verse 31, that God has fixed a day when he will judge the world. Paul doesn't know when it is. Jesus didn't know when it was going to be. No one knows except God himself. And this judgment is going to be perfect justice. There's no need to worry about fairness or a miscarriage of justice because the judge is omniscient. He knows everything about everybody, motives as well as actions and deeds. He knows people inside out. The Lord Jesus will be the judge. And then in case you don't believe all this, Paul says God has proved that this is going to happen because he raised Jesus from the dead. And he would take, no doubt, opportunities to explain the evidence for that. 500 odd different people over a dozen different occasions over a six-week period, all claiming to see him. So in this summary of what Paul said, that we uh, we have a perfect balance of the justice and mercy of God. We have God shown to be just. We all want evil to be eradicated. We all want the works of people like Amin, Pol Pot, Stalin, Hitler, etc. We all want them to face justice. But as soon as we ask God to execute justice on people, even though they may be significantly worse than we are, nonetheless, we are inviting justice to be applied to us and we're not perfect. And he will judge us as well as the infamous. And that's when we see the mercy of God. He has warned us of the judgment to come, He has made a way of escape for us through Christ, and he tells us how we can prepare for it and how we can avoid it. And then lastly, we see the response that Paul had, verse 32 onwards. People did respond, some positively, some negatively, some mocked, some determined to hear him again, some were converted. Maybe only three or four but they were the future leaders of the church that grew in that place and prevailed over the years to come. Dionysius, who was a council member of the Areopagus, a woman called Demaris, and numerous others. It's not clear how long Paul stayed in Athens. It may have been weeks, it may have been months. And we may think that this is very little fruit to show for it. Three or four people are converted. But... That was the start of the church there. So in summary, we've seen Paul at work in this multicultural society in Athens. And we uh, see that he finds out what they do actually believe. He doesn't deny them the liberty to believe it. They have that freedom up until the day of judgment to hold whatever ideas they have. But even by their own admission, They don't know some things because they had a statue to an unknown God. And that little vacuum, together with points in common with them, because he does quote a couple of times from their literature literature in in an affirming way, that common grace, that natural revelation, Paul seizes on that. And he, in effect, is building a bridge with them. He's starting where they're at. He's agreed with some, and then he's taken them across the bridge to his territory, to the revelation that is specific uh, through Christ and the prophets. And they engage in dialogue and discussion and debate. He does so with some degree of intellectual rigor. He's not gonna let them off by um, being able to kind of waffle, and to um, hide away behind some fantasy. He's quite rigorous. He wants evidence-based, if you like, um, debate here. Yes, some things are wrong, he's saying. And he argues so. And they're wrong because they're contrary to revelation. Even if people feel that something is so right, if it's contrary to what God has already revealed, you don't have to agonise, it is just wrong. We're not at liberty to kind of renegotiate what God happens to think is right or wrong. We are his creatures. He sets the agenda. And when properly explained, whether to market traders, whether to the kind of intelligentsia, or whether to the politicians, he does find a response. People do say, yeah, or ya, depending on which audience he's speaking to. Because they realise, yeah, this is what I have been looking for. This fills this vacuum in my thinking and in my life. And I'm going to buy into that. I'm going to take that. Well, let me pray, and then we'll just for three minutes show you the little two ways to live video. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that we might do some dialoguing this week. We pray that you might give us the opportunity to just speak about some aspect of the Christian faith, about the purpose of life. We confess that we do feel inadequate. We sometimes feel intimidated. We certainly sometimes feel on the wrong foot. But we do all know enough to get started. And we pray that you might help us as we listen to find out where people are at. We let them speak. We work on where they're at. We ask the right questions. We watch for an opening. And then we try and explain to the best of our ability the Christian view of life and how it has made great sense to us personally. May we take a descriptive stance to start with and may we gently become prescriptive if necessary. And may hearts and minds be turned. Amen. So two ways to live in three minutes.